with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about China to cut bank reserve requirement ratio by 25 basis points, and we will also take a look at the global economy. Where will it go? And now let's begin with our top story. China's central bank has announced it will cut the reserve requirement ratio by 25 basis points, effective from December the 5th. The People's Bank of China says the move will release 500 billion yuan in long-term liquidity. After the cut, the average reserve ratio will be further down to 7.8 percent. So, for more on this, joined us on the line now are Yan Liang, professor of economics, Villamet University, and also Qu Qiang, the assistant director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. So, Dr. Qu, first of all, tell us what does the Triple R cut tell us about? But、uh, you know China's economy, and why is this move now?、Uh, we see the manufacturing sector and the whole industrial output has been、uh, reduced, and also there is another potential risk, which is、uh, the real estate market.、Uh, it's been slowing down, and、uh, it's been connected to banking sector.、Uh, so, in order to make sure、uh, the whole stability of the market, so I think central bank is just uh, uh, make more ease on its monetary policy. Mm. And I think that can be effectively、uh, make sure that home market can be stable. So yeah, what do you think? What was the logic behind the China's、uh, monetary easing? What does the central bank want to achieve? Yeah, so I agree with Dr. Chu. I think、um, a big incentive is to provide ample liquidity to the property market. Uh, but at the same time, I also think that the monetary policy will remain to be, you know, prudent. So the idea is to provide sufficient but not excessive liquidity to the market.、Um, and also, I think we have seen numbers、um, from October's、uh, in terms of, you know, industrial growth.、Uh, the fixed asset investment growth has also、um, slowed down.、Uh, retail sales actually fell by 0.5 percent, and export fell by 0.3 percent. So in addition to, you know, helping specific. Sectors like the property market,、um, I think this monetary policy is also trying to help the broader economy.、Mm. And yeah, so how much of a positive impact do you think this round of triple R cuts is likely to have on the domestic financing needs? Yeah, so I think the the, the question here is really,、um, you know, it will help to provide liquidity, you know, to the banks,、um, and also in some ways help to lower the cost of the businesses because if they are, if the banks are mandated to keep more reserves in hand, that would mean, you know, they're able to,、um, they they will have to acquire the reserves, which is costly to their businesses. So in some ways, this is helpful for the banks, and also in some ways help with, you know, the real estate market. But I think. Overall,、uh, the demand side is really still the problem, which is you know how much the demand from the real sector, the real economy, for these lending for these loans. Because when you look at October's number,、uh, the banks、uh, lended about you know 110 billion dollars, which is you know 800 billion Chinese yuan. And that is a lot lower than what they did in September. So I think 
again, the general economy is we we still recovering, but it's at a lower, slower pace. And so there is a less demand for bank lending. So how are we able to, you know, really provide some more demand side support? I think is really what the policymakers need to be um, need to be thinking about. Mm. So, Dr. Chu, do you think there are more pro-growth or measures on the cards? Yes, um, I think first of all, um, I, we've been seeing that the central bank uh, and also the Ministry of Finance, as well as the NDRC, uh, they've been issuing series of policies to support investment infrastructure and also the job market, and etc. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and so let's talk about the relation with the global economy. For example, the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, has continued an ambitious uh, rate hiking cycle this year, and that caused the big swings in the bond market. What can we do in China to fend off the worries? Yeah, I think, first of all, if I may, I wanted to just add one more point about, you know, the policy toolkits. I think one of the things that the central government can do is also to enhance, you know, fiscal transfer to the local governments, because the local governments are really playing a very uh, important role in, you know, supporting the local economies. And now they are quite strapped in terms of uh, their revenues and their expenses, right? They have pretty large, you know, funding gaps because revenues have been going down, but they have been spending a lot to, for example, uh, maintain COVID restrictions, testing, you know, and so on. So I think it's important for the central government to um, provide more help to the local governments so that they can in turn help to stimulate their local economies. And in terms of the bonds, I think, you know, there are a lot of external factors. Like you said, it has a lot to do with the U.S.'s Fed's aggressive rate hikes, um, that creates the interest rate arbitrage opportunities. So a lot more capital flows to the U.S. market and also to the stronger dollar denominated uh, uh, securities. Um, Not to mention, you know, there are some specific factors in China that um, in some ways have dampened the bond yields. Um, You know, again, talking about the real estate sector, you know, some of the bonds were not be able to uh, pay back and so on. But I think still, um, if the economy is able to maintain a healthier growth uh, prospect, um, then I think that confidence will again attract bond investors, especially when they look at the long term. Um, the other thing is what we notice is that even though you know there's less appetite um, for the dollar bonds in the Chinese markets, There are a lot of uh, interest still in, for example, um, some of the bonds that are issued by, say, state-owned enterprises or state-backed bonds. Um, Because, again, there is the policy stances that create attractive buying opportunities um, at this low price. Um, So I think, again, what China can do is to really try to strengthen its own economy um, because a lot of external factors are not under the control. Mm. So, Dr. Ju, what have been done to support the SMEs and what can be done to ensure the financial industry plays a supporting role to the real economy? Um, I think Chinese uh, monetary policies, they have a lot of potential. Um, We've been seeing the whole globe is trying to uh, raise up the interest rate. Uh, but for China, uh, I think the interest rates have stayed uh, in a neutral uh, position uh, for a very long time. Um, even after so many changes, Chinese interest rates they are around 3% a year. Uh, in America, uh, after very, very aggressive uh, interest rate hike, uh, they are uh, very close to 3.75%. Uh, so in China, I think uh, there are more potential to and a space to um, raise up interest rate or 
lower the interest rate according to the need. So I think the maneuvering space is still very large. And mm-hmm. also in China, we have another advantage is that uh, the fiscal policy and the monetary policy are very closely working with each other, not like in many other countries. For example, in, uh, in America, uh, they always have to uh, do the bipartisan consensus to uh, make the agreement on many acts. And also in the European Union, uh, inside of this union, I think many uh, central bank policies cannot work with the respective uh, countries' fiscal policies. But in China, they've been working very closely to each other. Therefore, it allows China to uh, make more of the policies to support uh, the uh, SMEs. For example, the tax cut. Uh, if you take a look at the tax cut recently, I think it's uh, unprecedented. Um, it has been helping the SMEs and also the government uh, procurement uh, for the services and the product. And uh, we've been seeing more policies on the way. So, yeah, actually, do you agree with uh, Dr. Chu? And uh, what has the financial industry done to, you know, support the real economy? Right. So um, I think finance does play a very important role. Um, so, again, it not only helps to mobilize resources, but it also really helps to direct resources to the most efficient uses and really help to use finance to you know, support the real economy. Mm. So, yeah, so China's economy ranks second in the world for the past decades, uh, while the country is accelerating the opening up of its financial markets. So what do you think is implications? for the economies and the global investors. Right. So I think um, for the Chinese economy, uh, more financial opening allows China to, you know, learn, I would say, financial technologies and financial management and create more competitive, uh, you know, environment for domestic financial institutions. Um, So I think all of these would help to, uh, you know, uh, improve uh, China's own financial system. Um, On the other hand, I think there's also some regulatory, you know, cooperations and collaborations um, that, for example, China and the EU, um, they have been, you know, crafting, you know, for example, the green bonds taxonomy together, right? So this is a way to unify the kind of regulatory standards for green bonds and other, you know, fintech. Um, So I think all of these means that, you know, on the one hand, it will help to improve China's financial system. And on the other hand, these financial opening allow the rest of the world, the foreign institutions to be able, right, to take to to join the Chinese markets, right? It's a great market opportunities for a lot of these financial investors. It helps them to diversify risks. It helps them to improve their earnings. I think, you know, with digitalization of the yuan and with yuan, internationalization, um, it really helped to facilitate, you know, trade payments and investment uh, settlements and so on and so forth. And domestically, I think in addition to, you know, reducing transaction costs, it also improved inclusiveness of financial services. It also allowed monetary policy to be more position, to be more precise, uh, to be more targeted, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if there is, um, you know, loans that are supposed to be only going to small and medium-sized enterprises. With the digital tracking, um, it would make the policy a lot better uh, implemented and a lot more effective. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamat University, and also Chu Qiang, the Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. And after a short break, we'll take a look at the global economy. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard. 
economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The U.S. business activity contracted for a fifth straight month in November as higher interest rates slow the demand. S&P Global said its flash U.S. composite PMI fell to 46.3 this month. Meanwhile, the Eurozone composite PMI came in at 47.8 in the same period of time. A reading below 50 indicates contraction in the private sector. The OECD said in its latest report that the world economic growth is set to slide from 3.1% this year to 2.2% next year. So, Ian, let's talk about the U.S. economy first. It's officially the holiday shopping season in the U.S. And this year, it is a bit of a shadow, you know, hanging over it because inflation is near record high. So tell us, how is it changing up the way people shop? Right. Um, this Black Friday, um, I think the sales were actually strong. Uh, we have not got the uh, brick mortar sales numbers yet, but look at the online sales. It has topped, you know, $9 billion uh, in that Black Friday, which is slightly about 3% higher than last year. They also rely a lot on installments. So the so-called buy now, pay later orders have jumped up by 78% this week compared to the previous week. So what that means is that, yes, there's a lot of shopping, but at the same time, it means consumer debt is going to rack up. Mm -hmm. um, and also, we don't know the returns yet, so that still remains to be seen. And the OECD recently forecast the U.S. economy will slow from 1.8% uh, growth this year to only 0.5% next year. So, yeah, what's your take? What do you think are the main challenges that uh, the U.S. economy is facing? Right. So I think the Fed interest rate hikes um, is definitely one of the uh, downside factors. Um, so the Fed has raised interest rate four times since this year, and each time is a 75 basis point hike. And so that is quite significant. And so um, the forecast is that according to the conference board, for example, there's a 96% likelihood of a recession in the U.S. within the next 12 months. Um, and Bloomberg's forecast puts the probability in the 100%. Um, so, you know, with the rate hikes um, on, on, and other factors like sh labor shortages um, due to COVID, supply chain disruptions, energy and food price hikes, and so on and so forth, um, I think the U.S. economy seems to be really um, struggling. Mm. So, Dr. Chu, what do you think? Since March, the Federal Reserve actually has been raising the interest rate very aggressively. So, to slow the inflation, could the Fed tip the economy into recession? I think definitely. Well, well, probably for normal people, um, they don't have an idea about uh, raising up interest rate. Uh, how can it affect uh, your normal life? Uh, because uh, you say, okay, I don't have any investment. I don't have any uh, 
the things to do with the finance, but how can they affect me? Uh, let me just tell you, for example, um, if you're just a normal family living in the U.S., uh, you bought, uh, you know, like half a million worth of the house and you pay like, uh, you know, a hundred thousand U.S. dollar for the down payment and you have to borrow like the rest of the money from the banking sector. And, uh, you know, for that kind of borrowing, Usually, in early of this year, um, maybe in the January, you're gonna pay like uh, four thousand U.S. dollar uh, per month, and um, then if if you take a look at interest rates recently, uh, probably you're gonna looking at six thousand or even seven thousand of the uh, of the uh, monthly repayment every uh, every month, and also uh, don't forget you have the property tax. It's about like nearly uh, ten thousand U.S. dollar a year. And uh, sometimes in California, you've got a Mataru and uh, you have HOA and et cetera. So you're looking at basically uh, about 8,000 US dollars per month. And just take a look at how much, uh, how many of a family in the US and even in the U- California can make, uh, you know, like uh, more than uh, 15,000 US dollars a month. It's going to be a huge burden on the normal family's daily life. Uh, plus, you're taking a look at the inflation recently. Everything's going to be more expensive in the U.S., in Europe, and the rest of the world. Um, so, I think raising up the interest rate uh, can, you know, kill the uh, consumption capability of a normal family. And also, don't forget, this is just a normal family. To take a look at the enterprises, they mm-hmm. are heavier loaners from the banking system. So, their capability of loaning uh, has been restrained. And also. Uh, they can be more burdened to repay uh, the uh, the loan every month. Mm. So, Dr. Chu, so what does the higher interest rate being engineered by the U.S. Central Bank mean for other countries, especially those emerging market economies? Yes, uh, it's a good question. For the rest of the world, uh, you're probably thinking this has done nothing to do with me. But actually, every time when the Fed, uh, you know, raises up an interest rate, uh, there's an, uh, a phenomenon we call the capital flight. Uh, which means because putting your money in the U.S. banking se- uh, system is so good because you're lying on your bed and then you can make about 5% of the risk-free income, uh, uh, you know, for the whole year. Just imagine in a real economy how much kind of the business can provide you 5% of the return, you know, by doing nothing. Uh, well, you probably can make 10% a year by having a little restaurant on the street stand, Something like that, but you have to work every day, and uh, you will have the risk, uh, like the peak season and off season, etc. But uh, put your money in the American banking system, make you earn five percent risk-free a year, and also don't forget you will have, if you switch your money into U.S. dollar, you will have uh, the appreciation, you know, in your currency because U.S. dollar is appreciating, uh, you know, against your own currency. For example. Uh, U.S. dollars appreciating against the Japanese yuan is about uh, 20% a year. So uh, if you're Japanese uh, people and if you switch your money into U.S. dollar, put them into the U.S. banking system, you're looking at 25% of the income immediately uh, of this year by doing mm-hmm. nothing. So everybody will switch the money into U.S. dollar and putting them into the American uh, dollar-denominated asset market and banking system. So that will make your economy collapse 
and your asset market to depreciate it a lot. So Yan, so what do you expect for the U.S. monetary policy later this year or early next year? Will the Fed, you know, continue its aggressive interest rate hikes? Right. I think from Fed's、uh, minutes, I think they did start to exhibit some kind of dovish、um, stance.、Um, it doesn't mean that they're going to stop raising interest rates, but probably not as much as you know what they have been doing, which is the jumbo、uh, increase of seventy-five basis points each time. So there's some.、Uh, Again, earlier signs、um, that show they might start raising rates at a slower pace, maybe 50 basis points、um, each time.、Uh, but again, December they still have one more meeting, and it's likely they're going to raise the interest rate again by、uh, 50 basis points. And they probably will continue to raise rates、um, until inflation drops to an acceptable level, which is around you know their target was two percent, and October inflation rate was 7.7 percent.、Um, So it's likely they're they're going to continue their rate hikes, but again, I I think it's it's really not a、um, advisable policy.、Um, I mean, there's nothing really scientific to say we need to get that two percent of in,、uh, inflation rate. I think small positive inflation rate is totally fine and compatible with you know healthy growth of the economy. And continue with the rate highs, you know, not only you know、uh, depress the U.S. economy, but like Dr. Chu talked about, this is really heightened the debt burdens for the rest of the world,、um, and also cost you know these orderly capital outflows.、Um, one of the things that we have seen so far is that there are at least over 50 heavily indebted countries that need immediate debt relief. Um, and there has been a call from the UNDP to increase the、uh, eligibility of countries that are able to get the Common Framework of the G20 to get more debt relief, other than just the, the you know the most indebted and the poorest countries.、Mm. So that just shows you know、um, the rate hikes are really wrecking havoc not only the, not only the U.S. economy but the global economy. Again, all this is just to have this very ultra low inflation rate, which really does not have Any,、um, I would say, uh, uh,、um, legitimate、um, sort of reasons to to why inflation rate has to be kept that low.、Mm. So, talking about the rest of the world, for example, the Europe, the European Commission recently lowered its growth forecast for the eurozone to only zero point three percent for the next year. So, tell us more about it. How will the energy crisis in Europe affect、uh, its economy, especially for the countries like Germany? Right. So Germany,、um, their latest forecast for growth this year is 1.4 percent, and then a 0.4 percent of decline in the GDP or contraction for the next year. These surging, you know, energy prices、uh, really force a lot of heavy, you know, sort of in- energy-intensive industries to scale back the production,、um, like their chemicals and、um, some of the、uh, metals. Companies,、uh, producers re- have to reduce their production.、Uh, at least twenty percent of the energy-intensive industries have been doing that, and eight percent of these energy-intensive companies、uh, are considering re- relocating to other countries. And you know, seventeen percent,、um, the number that I saw for the automotive industries,、um, they are considering relocating. And so that means, you know, it's not just a short-term energy problems or short-term. Um, economic problems, but it could be it could have really long-term、uh, implications, like deindustrialization, you know, technological stalemate, and job losses, and all these problems are going to you know continue to take a toll on the German economy. And 
as we all know, Germany's economy is the leading kind of economy, right, for the eurozone.、Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be a big problem. Not to mention, they also run very high inflation rate,、um, as high as 10.4 percent in October. So I think you know that's why with all these energy crises,、um, with runaway you know sort of inflation, the eurozone economy is not looking good. Mm. And another region we will talk about、uh, again is Asia. Whatever growth the international economy produces next year, the OECD says will come largely from the emerging market countries of Asia. Together, they will account for three quarters of the world growth next year. So, how do you explain that? Why Asia such a big proportion of the world growth, and what are the economic dynamism in this region? Right, so I think we look at a long-term view.、Um, Asian economy have been growing and also、uh, resilient、um, due to a, a, a quite a few of factors.、Um, for example,、um, they have implemented pro-growth, you know, fiscal monetary policies. They have flexible exchange rates that could help absorb a lot of external shocks.、Um, they have excellent export-oriented and also diversified economic structures.、Um, very integrated regional,、uh, you know, supply chain. Um, so all these help to promote, you know, economic growth、um, in the past decades.、Um, they have averaged five and a half percent growth rate every year、um, on average over the preceding, you know, two decades.、Um, so that is quite a track record. And I think in terms of recently,、um, Asian economies have pretty good, you know, effective pan- pandemic containment、um, sort of strategies, especially the test and chase methods. They also have very strong export performances, right? There's a lot of strong demand for exports from, you know, advanced countries when they have,、um, you know, stimulus for their、uh, for the demand, and yet, and also there's the shift of demand, you know, for consumption from services to goods. So all these help Asian economies to, you know, register、um, excellent export performances. Um, they also had really prompt and also sizable policy responses、um, to the economic slowdown due to COVID. So、uh, I think all these、um, May Asians growth、um, their economy as a bright spot. They are forecasted to grow by 4.3 percent next year,、um, and they're going to grow by 4 percent this year, which is actually a slowdown from last year's growth rate. But in any case, I think you know with the very Um, you know, effective measures to contain the pandemic, and also with that very good、um, integrated regional supply chain,、um, I think Asian economies will remain strong.、Mm-hmm. Well, we've been speaking with Yan Liang, professor of economics, Villamat University, and also Xu Qiang, the assistant director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, oh, oh.